This is day 218 of our daily Bible reading. We will be completing 2 Corinthians chapters 5 through 9. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the immense blessings you've given us. Thank you for your Son, who died and rose again for us, that we may be saved through him forever. We don't deserve it, Lord. We are so humbled by your gift to us. The least that we can do, Lord, is to do everything in your service, our heart, our mind, and our body, all going toward the kingdom of God. As we go into your word this morning, Lord, please bless this time. Please enlighten us and open our minds to the scriptures that we may understand it more clearly. All this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we were made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. And I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, conflicts within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that, as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. 
I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for your need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, but he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren, in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that we would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, 
He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay, there was some really interesting stuff that we read today, so it's important that we go through this, because this directly applies to us, as almost everything does. In chapter 5, it begins with the assurance of our resurrection. How do we know our salvation is secure? What Paul describes is that the Holy Spirit is given to us by God as a pledge. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within the believer is the guarantee. It is the down payment, if you will, of our salvation for eternity. There's your proof. That is how you know you're truly saved. You have the indwelt Holy Spirit. So we really have nothing to worry about. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And not only that, but it says that we are walking by faith, not by sight. We're not walking according to things that we can see. We're walking according to things that we cannot see. If we're walking according to things that we can see, those are the things of the world. Those are the things that everyone else who is not saved chases after. But we chase after God, and therefore Jesus Christ, and he cannot be seen. We don't know what he looks like. And God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. So we believe in the things that we cannot see. And that is the faith that is supplied to us by the Holy Spirit. Now here's an interesting thing that is stated here in verse 6. Be always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then it says in verse 8, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Do you see there is no in-between here? The whole concept of things like purgatory, for example, are not biblical. It says very clearly here that we are either in our body and away from the Lord, 
or we are out of our body and we are with the Lord. There are only two planes of existence that we can be in, in our body in the world or out of our body with the Lord. That's it. Those are the only options. So anybody who tells you anything in between is telling you a lie. Now, it also says that we are going to be standing in judgment. Now, there's two kinds of judgment, and it depends on what side of the aisle that you're on. If you are not saved, you will take your judgment in front of the great white throne, in front of God himself, and he will pronounce your condemnation. However, if you are saved, you will go before the judgment seat of Christ where Christ is not only our judge, but he's also our defense attorney. He's also our advocate. He's also the jury. You see how it's very interesting how this courtroom works. But at the end of that court session, we will be declared innocent because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's two different kinds of judgments, but we will still stand before God and have to account for everything we've ever done, good or bad. And so every careless word we've ever said, every good deed we did when no one was looking, all of that is going to be put into account, and it will be weighed on the scales. We are not weighed by our works, but we will be held accountable for what we've done. The second half of chapter 5 is very powerful to consider. It says that in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. And that's an interesting thing, because we know that God is our master now, but he controls us too? You have to give him the reins. He can override you at any time, let's be clear, but he also wants you to give him the reins. He wants you to submit to his authority. And when you do, he will guide you where he wants you to go, and it will be much better than anything you will ever choose for yourself. Why do we see it like this? Because he died for all, and therefore we all died. And so if he died for us, we owe him, in a sense. So therefore, we are no longer alive for ourselves, we are alive for him. And that's why you go to verse 17, and it says that if you're in Christ, you are a new creature. In the Greek, it says quite literally that you are a new creation. That's fantastic to think about. You are the same person, but you are different than you were before. You are no longer the same corrupted, fallen person you were before. The Holy Spirit regenerates you from within, and you are transformed into a new creature. Your affections are different. Your attitude is different. Your personality remains intact and your memories as well, but your motivations change. The desires of your heart change. Those are also telltale signs of true salvation. So not only did he just redeem you, but he also made you brand new. And that's very interesting, especially when we consider that you can't physically see anything different, but inside all the inner mechanisms are completely different. It's very fascinating to think about. So therefore, if we are made in his image, and we will be conformed to his image, and we are a new creature in Christ, 
Therefore, like it says in verse 20, we are ambassadors of him. We represent him. Remember what Christian means, little Christ. So if anyone is a Christian, they are a little Christ. So we should have a lot of little Christs running around looking like Christ. So we represent the kingdom of God now. Not only are we citizens of it, but we represent it. So unfortunately, that comes with some responsibility, doesn't it? Some people don't use it correctly, and so the world at large tries to make us look like we're a bunch of kooks, that we are zealots of some kind, but for things that don't make sense, or they contradict themselves, or they're hypocritical. We need to accurately represent Christ as he represented God. In chapter 6, he references a scripture from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And his emphasis is on the day of grace being right now. And what is the point of that? We don't want to listen to false teachers that, well, you know, it's not coming for a long time, or the kingdom of God is so far away. The kingdom is now. The time is now to act for the kingdom of God. There's no better time to do it. And this is the theme of Paul's ministry, everything that's listed from verse 3 to verse 10. The apostolic ministry is to show us that even though the world sees us as defeated or poor or losers, that we have so much more that they don't see. The richness of the glory that is coming to us, the power of God within us, and all the blessings that come with it. They don't see all that. They think that we are broken and miserable. And we should never appear to be miserable. There's something wrong if we do. But we have much more than they could ever dream of. And they just don't understand. Because God is not with them. And they have chosen to deny him. Then the second half of chapter 6 is where Paul begins to exhort. He starts to instruct the Corinthian people to be better than they currently are. And the first thing that he tells them to do is to not restrain their hearts, but to open their hearts wide to not only him, but also to others. To make your heart vulnerable. For me, that's something that was probably one of the hardest things for me to do, and I don't claim to be perfect at it today, but I've come a long way. I've had a lot of trauma and emotional abuse in my younger years, and it really left some scar tissue in my psyche. And so I built some really high walls in my life where I didn't want to let anybody in. Not even my wife, before we got married. When we first started dating, I would not open up to her because I was so afraid of getting hurt and betrayed. And Things were not going well for a while because I was not opening up to her. But when I finally figured out through my thick skull that she wanted to know who I was genuinely and was not out to get me, then I was able to open up. And things started going very well from there. And since I became a Christian and have spent more time in church and in leadership, I've learned to be more reckless in that way. Because... I know that those times will come. There will be those times that where people backstab you. There will be those times where they betray you. 
but it is so worth it to demonstrate the love of God than just talk about it. You can talk about the love of God all day, but if you don't demonstrate the love of God, it's empty. Now, that's what he wants to get through to them, where we do not need to be restrained in our own affections. We need to open our hearts to others so that we can share the gospel with them, but also to develop fellowship with fellow believers. But he mentions here something that we've read previously. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. If you were to contrast these two things, believers and unbelievers, in a spiritual sense, they are polar opposites. Like it says here, we are righteous and they are lawless. What partnership does righteousness and lawlessness have? Or what harmony is there with Christ and Belial, which is another name for Satan? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? There is none. So therefore, what harmony is there between a believer and an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see how all these things are polar opposites. So again, it's not saying that we never associate with unbelievers because that defeats the whole purpose of what we're called to do. However, you don't want to listen to them too much. You don't want to be influenced by them. We want to be separated from false teachers as well as people who are trying to get in our way, like unhealthy business practices or unhealthy friendships people trying to lead us into temptation, very worldly people. We want to avoid those, having close relationships with them. So what he's trying to get at is personal holiness is paramount. That's why he quotes from a reference in Leviticus chapter 26, as well as from Isaiah chapter 52, which is what we see in verses 16 through 18. He has called us to be separate, to be holy. We are God's chosen people, therefore we are to be holy just as he is holy. So he dwells with us, he makes us his sons and daughters, which is that heirship we've talked about before, and we are no longer like the rest of the world. Therefore, we have no association with it. We can be in it, but we're not a part of that world any longer. We are in bigger and better things now. So knowing that full well, he challenges us in verse 1 of chapter 7. Cleanse yourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Well, I thought the spirit was good. Well, there are evil spirits too. Remember, there's demons. That's evil spirits. We want to have purity of flesh and purity of spirit. And the effort is to perfect holiness in the fear of God. So that is the ultimate goal. If you truly fear the Lord, you will obey him. If you truly fear the Lord, you will seek him. And that is what we need to constantly be working on by spending time with him in his word and in prayer. And then being obedient to what he's told us to do. Not only in how we conduct ourselves, but in our actions. How we speak to people. Are we witnessing to people? Are we giving generously, which is something we'll talk about in a minute. Now, here's one that the entire church today needs to hear. In the middle of 
chapter 7, Paul is talking about the letter that he had previously sent to them, which is the one that is between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And this one caused them a great deal of sorrow. He was both happy and sad that he caused them sorrow. He didn't want to hurt them. He doesn't want them to feel bad. But he was aiming for something, and it was achieved. What was he trying to do? He wanted them to feel sorrowful to the point of repentance. So it's not that we're trying to guilt trip people. It's not that we're trying to make them feel bad intentionally. But sometimes we have to get through to people a certain way where they can look at themselves honestly. To confront somebody and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but this is the truth. What you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. And this leads us down the road of repentance. That's the whole point. Sometimes tough love is needed. Sometimes the cold, hard truth needs to be said. But ultimately, what is the purpose of it? Not to make them feel bad, not to discourage them, but to get them to the point where they see the way I'm living, the choices I'm making are not acceptable. Therefore, I need to do something and I need to repent. I need to change my behavior. I need to turn away from those evil things. And I need to return to the Lord so that he may restore the joy of my salvation. That's the goal where we can repent without regret, like it says in verse 10. This is the goal, to get people to repent without regret. I'll do what you want me to do, Lord, but I don't really want to do it, but I'll do it because I love you. And you do it begrudgingly. This has been a hard one for me, too, because, as I mentioned, I was addicted to video games. And sometimes I still feel that draw, and I still want to play. And so sometimes I want to reason with God. I'm like, Lord, I'll do what you want, but let me have some games, please. So I have some regrets. As I feel like I'm giving something up that I don't want to let go, Lord, to follow you. That is a terrible way to be. But if we truly love the Lord, and we truly repent, you won't feel that regret. You will, with reckless abandon, Drop everything and follow God. He wants us to get to that point. That is the way that we need to conduct ourselves in the presence of God. And imagine what God can do through you if you abandoned all and followed him. He could do remarkable things in you. In chapter 8, he focuses mostly on giving. The most important concept to get out of this is that Giving should be a natural extension of your love. Giving of your own self, not only of your resources, but also of your time, is indicative of your ministry and what the intention of your heart is. There are some bare minimums that we should be doing in giving. For one is we should be tithing. We should be giving 10% of our income to God. It could be to the local church or it can be in another form of ministry he's called you to go to. But the first 10%, the, the first fruits, if you will, belong to God, always. Let him guide you into how to use it, but it does need to be factored into your budget as 10% going to God, not to yourself. So get used to living on 90% on what you make. And if that's still not enough, get another job, or find something that pays a little bit better. 
And I'm being dead serious about that. This is always a, a touchy subject with people because they don't like to talk about money. If you don't like talking about money, you must have a problem with it. Or you must have some feelings of inadequacy, like you don't have enough of it. If you truly trusted God with your resources, then you would trust that he could take care of you financially. I always find that bizarre that people are this way. We have no problem with entrusting God with our eternal destination, but yet we have trouble with God taking care of our bills, with paying off debt. I always find it odd that we can trust him so easily on bigger things, but not on the little things. Let God handle the little things too. Have faith that he can do that. And lastly, when it comes to giving, in chapter 9, verse 7, he says that each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We don't just give our 10% because we have to. We should be giving to God and those in need because we want to. He loves a cheerful giver. What does the opposite look like? Well, here's an example. There was a church that came out on the news a few days ago where they got in trouble legally because their former employees were taking them to court over them taking out 10% of their pay automatically as a tithe. They forced it out of them. But look what it says in verse 7. It says that people do what they purpose in their heart. It needs to be a choice. It not should be done grudgingly, or like it says here, under compulsion, where you have to. You have to, as part of being a member of this church, you must give $1,000. That is not what the Bible says. You should not make anybody give to God. If they don't want to give to God, let God deal with them. But we that love the Lord understand that God is the manager of all of our resources. It is all his money anyway. Nothing belongs to us, really. And we'd be happy to give it back to him. And he blesses that. Think about what we read in the book of Malachi. There was a time where it said that, test me on this. This is the only time I can recall in the Bible where it says to test him on this. Test me that I won't multiply it, that I won't do amazing things with it if you were to give 10% of the storehouse. God is the God of multiplication. Nothing is beyond his ability. He wills everything into existence with an afterthought. How can you have doubt that God can take care of you if he is so powerful where you have nothing to ever worry about? If he wanted to make you rich, he could in an instant. He may not do that because not everybody is meant to have a lot of money or he knows your weaknesses and you're not smart with money, but he could. And he will bless you if you were to devote your resources to him and give above and beyond that if you want to. Be, be generous. God loves generosity. Don't, you don't want to get yourself into debt over it and make some poor decisions, but if you have the means to give, give. Give freely. Give without reservation. He loves a cheerful giver, and if you commit those things to him, he will bless it and he will multiply it. 
Watch. Just try it. Test him on it. He will do it. And with that, I think that's a good place to stop for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.